0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownprez.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, hello, neighbor. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? Got some rain today. Glad you guys are here. It all started at 7:51 a.m. on a Friday morning in Washington, DC. An ordinary man dressed up in a faded blue shirt, basic black jeans, and a tightly bent National's cap arrived at one of the busiest metro stations in the city. He positioned himself against a sidewall adjacent to a trash can, which filled his nostrils with the aromas of half-eaten sandwiches and overburnt Starbucks beans and whatever the chunky foreign liquid was on the outside of the can and then he opened up a small case, and he brought out a violin. He set the case on the ground, he dropped a few dollars in it to encourage passersby to give, and then he held the violin up to his chin. See, for this anonymous man, this beaten down station was his stage. He would take the next 45 minutes to play for all the strangers around him. In many ways, that's actually a typical scene in any busy city. Recently, I learned that these people are called buskers, Anybody familiar with that phrase? Buskers? Had never heard of it before. I got really familiar with it this year because I actually get to become a busker soon enough. Many of you may already know this. I managed to get last place in my fantasy football league this year. (laughs) And that means I've earned the punishment of sitting outside a Suns game and playing an instrument chosen for me by the winner of our league for two hours. (laughs) So if you're looking for a bad time, come on down to Footprint Center. I'll be attempting to play the Tin Whistle for two hours, yeah, can't wait, but what if, what if the busker we so often pass by wasn't just a pastor who was bad at fantasy football, what if they were one of the most talented musicians in the world, what if the instrument they played was one of the oldest and most valuable in the world, worth over four million dollars, how many people would respond then, And that's exactly what the Washington Post wanted to find out on that morning in D.C. So their musician that they sent out there wasn't random. His name was Joshua Bell. He's one of the world's greatest living violinists. And they dressed him up like an ordinary dude, plopped him down at the peak of rush hour in federal Washington, and waited to see what happened. Now keep in mind the sort of people that are walking by him here. We're talking politicians, lobbyists, lawyers, policy analysts. You know all those jobs that sound really impressive, but you don't really know what they do? These are important people on their way to important things, and at that station on that day, they're all faced with a choice. They could continue in their tunnel vision, busyness, and hurry, blinds to the beauty all around them, right in front of their eyes. Or they could stop. They could be willing to be interrupted. They could participate in the beauty there, then and there. And the results were pretty astounding. In total, about 1,100 people passed by Joshua Bell that morning, Guess how many stopped for any length of time. Shout out some numbers out of the 1,100. 20? Any other guesses? 10? 50? 7? That's fewer than 1%. Beauty and goodness were in their midst, but they were too busy, too hurried to notice. And here's the truth, friends. We all suffer from those same busyness blinders. We're all busy people in a busy world. And we don't need a Subway and Joshua Bell to see this. All we have to do is ask each other one question. How are you? You notice that? When you ask somebody how are you, how do they respond? I'm good. I'm busy. Hey, how are things going? They're good. They're busy. According to a recent study cited in the Harvard Business Review, when asked the question how are you, 80% of respondents use the word busy at some point. Social scientists have now started to refer to this dynamic in our culture as time poverty. We've become the lived embodiment of that gif of the cat in front of the keyboard. You know that gif, this one up here? This is us, right? <laughs> busy, 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 everything is busy. But what's most fascinating about our busyness is that many of us in America actually celebrate this stuff. We equate busyness with goodness and virtue. We've turned it into something that indicates we're healthy. There's research out of Columbia University that shows people tend to assume others who are busy are more important and more impressive. And another study by the American Psychological Association said that most people report busyness to be a morally admirable trait. To be busy in the U.S. is to be better. And so many of us often unintentionally just go right along with that trend. We wrapped busyness into our own lives because everyone's praising it, and then we treat it like a badge of honor. There's a phrase in our culture that we use all the time. I've talked about this before. Rise and grind. You guys know the phrase, rise and grind. Come on. New York Times bestseller entitled Rise and Grind. YouTube video after YouTube video. Inspirational speeches encouraging you to rise and grind. And if you're not familiar with the phrase, basically what it means is that we need to become people who are busy from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, or else we're not maximizing our lives. We need to rise and grind. But for as much as our culture praises it, busyness for its own sake isn't a virtue. In fact, it's often a vice. It prevents us from experiencing the full and free life that God has for us. First, it does that by harming our physical and emotional health. There was a cardiologist back in the 1950s who first saw this disturbing trend coming. His name was Meyer Friedman. And he was one of the first doctors to illustrate how high stress levels connected to chronic busyness actually contributed to increased risk for heart disease. He coined a term to describe our American condition. He called it hurry sickness. And he illustrated that it was wreaking havoc on our physical and emotional health. He defined hurry sickness this way. A continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish and or achieve more and more things and participate in more and more events in less and less time. Does that not sound like many of our lives? In fact, contemporary doctors have adopted his language. Hurry sickness is now a condition that psychiatrists will use to refer to their patients. But it's not just our physical and emotional health that this is harming in us, it's also harming our spiritual health. Because when we live like this, when we live lives of busyness without margin that are overstuffed with activity and constant doing, then we develop spiritual tunnel vision. We're unable to be present to ourselves, to the world around us, to God. When situations or experiences arise in front of us, good, bad, or ugly, busyness robs us of the ability to enter into them well, to be patient and present in them. We're distracted or numb or looking for more. We suffer from interior immigration, as the great philosopher Douglas Steer put it. We're here in our body, but our minds and our hearts are a thousand miles away, a thousand steps ahead. Busyness also robs us of the ability to be present to God because our lives are too full to allow room for meaningful engagement, as Emily just mentioned. This is the main hurdle I hear when I talk to people about their own spiritual lives. Most people say they'd love to pray. They'd love to read scripture. They'd love to spend time with God and go to church and do all those things. They just don't know how it'll fit into their schedule. There's a Catholic theologian named Ronald Rallheiser who describes this in his book, The Holy Longing. He says, it's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We'd like these. It's just that we're too habitually preoccupied to have any of them show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in the church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. And finally, friends, busyness robs us of the ability to be present with our neighbors. Deep human connection and love is lost in the blur of all of our hurry. We overlook our cashier. When's the last time you made eye contact with your cashier and called them by their name? We overlook our coworker, our fellow student, or a neighbor in need, all because we're consumed with our own need to get our own stuff done. We love the idea of loving our neighbor. Nobody resists that idea. It's just the actual doing of it. Do we have time for it? John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, put it pretty convictingly. He said, hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life today. And love and hurry are not at all compatible because love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people don't have. When we say, I don't have time, to get to know my neighbor and love them, what we're really saying is, I don't consider loving my neighbor as important as everything else. We're being blinded by our busyness, friends. The primary task of the Christian today isn't more white-knuckled religious effort. It's not more great theological knowledge. It's the ability to resist busyness and hurry. So that we would be present to God, to ourselves, to our neighbor. Having enough margin and awareness to orient ourselves towards him and hear the music. the busy subway. We're in the middle of a teaching series here at Midtown. We're calling Won't You Be My Neighbor, completely ripping off Mr. Rogers, absolutely. I'm wearing my best Mr. Rogers sweater every week as well, so I hope that beyond these sick threads, there's also other things that you're remembering (laughs) from this series. We wanted to start our year here examining moments from the life of Jesus that teach us what it looks like to be the best of neighbors in our world exploring what these stories had to say to us in our own time. And the primary reason we're doing that is because we live in a time that is in desperate need of good neighbors. We live in a time of division and loneliness and isolation. And it's precisely into those conditions that Jesus' command to love our neighbors is so radical. Because good neighboring is how we become people who comfort the mourners, who bind up the brokenhearted, who love the stranger, So today, we get to explore a story where Jesus illustrates the radical ways that healthy neighboring resists the tyranny of busyness. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is your second book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. We'll get you one for free. I love giving away free books. It's one of my favorite things. It's my love language, maybe. Is that one? Uh, maybe not. Giving gifts? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, a love, it's my love language. I'd love to give you a book. Friends, Mark 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the lake. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. There was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had And she was no better, but rather grew worse. And she'd heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all rounds to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If ever there was someone who had a right to busyness and hurry, it was Jesus. In fact, that's actually part of the way that the Gospel of Mark is written. From the very beginning chapters, Mark has told the story of Jesus at a frenetic pace. Miracle after healing, after conflict, after miracle come without any breaks It reads like a machine gun. It hits you over and over again with constant busyness and activity and crowds and stuff surrounding Jesus. In fact, along the way, Mark keeps referring to a recurring character he calls the crowds. In chapter 1, immediately after Jesus' ministry begins and he performs a healing, Mark says that crowds start to press in on him. They push and shove and demand for him to do more and be more. And that word crowds appears in 14 of the 16 chapters we have of Mark. Hurry and demands of the crowds never end. Before we arrive in chapter 5 here, we learn that the crowds are always getting in the way of Jesus. To this point, they've already blocked a paralyzed man from getting to him, pushed Jesus to the point of unsafety for himself, and they've prevented he and the disciples from doing very essential things like eating, praying, and resting. It's as if Mark is shouting to us that busyness, hurry, and crowds are often barriers to God's work in the world. They aren't proof that God is at work, they're often preventers. That's why Soren Kierkegaard famously said that the crowd is untruth. Or that Alcine of York famously said, the riotousness of the crowd is always very close to madness. And that's a convicting message for all of us in our American culture. Or maybe just for me, because I'm an Enneagram three and an achiever. Convicting message for me. See, our culture often thinks the opposite. Most of us assume that crowds are the goal. We assume that busyness and noise and hurry and crowds validate our work and that more of those things means more success. More likes, more shares, more retweets, more business, more customers, more sales, more profit, more. More is the measure of success for us. I mean, imagine if we modern day Americans were in charge of Jesus' ministry at this time. How would we handle the crowds? we'd probably double down on them, right? That's what we do. We'd say, Jesus, you're killing it. So we've got you a book deal. We're going to start writing and publishing all these books so we can get the word out there. We're also going to build a mega healing center right here. And we've got a drive-through healing line for people so we can just keep churning these suckers out, keep the crowds coming. We'll build a merch stand over there too, hats, shirts, mugs. Everyone's got to hear about our healing center for the kingdom. That's what we do. We double down on the crowds, but that's not what Jesus does. As the crowds are pressing in on him, in the chapter just before this, in Mark 4, the text says that Jesus leaves the crowds behind. He travels across the lake to the unclean Gentile territory. And then when he gets there, he goes to the fringes of that society. He goes to a man who is compelled and overcome by a legion of demons. This is a man who's on the fringes, a man who's been overlooked, ignored, and belittled. And that's where God goes. That's God's pace away from the crowds. He moves slowly to the last, the least, and the lost. That's what Jesus' neighboring looks like. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't productive. Just because he's not busy doesn't mean he's lazy. Jesus accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. Everywhere he went, redemption and restoration came. It's just that his work and love was never hurried. It was never dictated by the urgency and demands of the crowds. It was patient, attentive, deliberate. There's a Japanese theologian named Kasuke Koyama who wrote an entire book on this topic. He called it three-mile-per-hour God. Three miles per hour is the average human walking speed. And so his point is that God is always moving at the pace that he needs to move in order to love humanity. Here's what he says. God walks slowly because he's love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not whether we're currently hit by storm or not, at three miles per hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore it is the speed the love of God walks. Friends, if we want to become truly loving neighbors like Jesus, then we need to learn to walk at Jesus' pace. We need to learn to resist the crowds and busyness and to hear the music of God that's playing around us, to walk at the speed of our neighbors in need. And in this story of Jairus and the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter, we get a perfect example of what this looks like. In this story, we see three things about Jesus' neighboring. We see his neighboring has time, his neighboring is interruptible, and his neighboring brings new life. First, his neighboring has time. So after healing this demon-possessed man in Gentile territory, Jesus and his disciples come back to Jewish territory. They cross back to the lake. That's what we read right away in our passage today. And who's there waiting for him? The crowds, it's like they've been waiting on shore, looking for him to come back. They don't even let him get off the boat, and they're on him like moths to a flame. And in the middle of that crowd, one man fights and pushes his way to the front, Jairus. And once Jairus gets to Jesus, he throws himself to the ground and begs Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. She's on her deathbed, and he needs a miracle. Now, we read that Jairus was a synagogue leader in that day which means he was an esteemed member of the religious community. And at this time, that religious community already had come to some pretty clear conclusions on who Jesus was. He's a false messiah with dangerous teaching. We need to push ourselves away from him. And so what Jairus is doing goes against what everyone in his community would have encouraged him to do. All the religious people were saying, leave him behind. And Jairus goes to Jesus and the crowds and invites all of them to his home. It's a curious move. Why? Why does Jairus do this? Because he's desperate. His child is dying. And all the upright and proper religion of his day hasn't gotten him squat. All the doctors of his day haven't gotten him squat. When death is near to him and his family, all of those things suddenly seem much less important. All the social divides, all the religious divides, all the theological knowledge seems much less important. Parents in this room can imagine. Some parents in this room know this sort of desperation intimately. Jairus is in dire need, and that's what draws him to Jesus. And Jesus has time for Jairus and his daughter. Remember, this wasn't planned. Jairus was not on Jesus' calendar that day. In fact, Jesus is probably pretty exhausted. Remember Jesus' day. He's gone on a huge commute to a place he was largely unfamiliar with, He completed a demon inspection and removal that day. And then he's kicked out of that town. The people are like, you're way too powerful. We don't want you here. This is scary. So he has to come back. Another long commute. And immediately the crowds are right back in his face. He is spent right now. And yet he has time for this man and his daughter. He has time to love a representative of the establishment that is actively seeking to harm him. He has time for his neighbor. And he has time for you and me because of one truth. We're in need. Neighboring love has time. It's never consumed with its own calendar and schedule. It doesn't have blinders on. It takes the time to see those in need and to move towards them. A few years back, I was driving to a meeting at a church in Scottsdale. And I stopped at a red light. And on the corner, as many of us have experienced, was a man with a sign who said, hey, I need some water. I need some food. And then immediately to my right, there's a gas station. I could have easily pulled into this gas station. But my mind started to run as soon as I saw the guy. Well, if I stop, I'm going to be late to this meeting for sure. And then even if I do stop, I'm really just reinforcing his condition right, by giving him aid. And besides, he probably has made some bad choices to get himself in this position, and he's probably going to make some other bad choices after I help him. And after it's all said and done, my help won't make much of a difference anyway, and the light turned green. And I kept going. I made it to my meeting on time. And we brainstormed that day all the ways that our church could train people to love their neighbors. I didn't have time, friends. I overlooked the person in front of me, the person who had a need that I easily could have met. All because of my busyness. If we don't have time for our neighbors urgent, urgently in need, it probably means we need a schedule check and a heart check, friends. Because if our hearts and lives are closed to our neighbors, they're closed to God. If they're closed to, God, closed to God's image bearers, they're closed to God. They're turned inward on themselves. Now, there's a great artist and sculptor many of you have heard of, Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, the artist. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Lincoln. Michelangelo once famously described his method when he was working on the statue of David. He looked at this large block of marble, and he said, I just started to chisel away at everything that wasn't a masterpiece. That's what neighboring looks like. Chiseling away at anything that is stopping our hearts and our lives from loving our neighbors. Chisel away, bit by bit, until you have a masterpiece of a life that looks more and more like Jesus'. So two questions. What are the needs of your neighbors that God has placed right in front of you? And second, what are the things that are preventing you from loving them? And let's, as a community, start chiseling away. So neighboring has time. But we also see in Jesus that neighboring is interruptible. So as Jesus is walking along to help Jairus and his daughter, suddenly he's interrupted we hear of a woman in the crowd who's been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And I don't want to overlook what that means. This is a woman who has had a nonstop period for 12 years. Guys in the room, you may not understand that, talk to a trustworthy woman in your life, she'll tell you all about it. She has been going through hell. And it's not just physical here, this is also social for her. Because when a woman menstruated in the first century Jewish context, it made her unclean. Hygiene was tougher back in the day, and so during a woman's period, she'd have to stay quarantined in order to make other people not unclean. So for 12 years, this woman has been isolated, rejected, lonely, ostracized. For 12 years, she's been an outsider to the community. For 12 years, physicians and doctors have failed her. She knows that she has no social status. She knows that she's been unable to bear children, which was a major identity marker in her time. She knows that she has no money, having spent it all on treatments. She knows that she's not supposed to be in this crowd because she could be making other people unclean. She knows she's less than. But she also knows one other thing, that she needs to be healed. And that's what drives her to Jesus. So she hatches a plan. She's going to do a drive-by healing. Just going to sneak in there real quick, touch his cloak, and then get the heck out of there so nobody knows I was there. And she does. She sneaks in there, she touches Jesus, and she's healed. It works. And as she's on her way out, Jesus notices. He notices that power has extended from him. See, Jesus is not some magical healing orb that floats around the world. Jesus, God in flesh, is a person, which means he's relational, He wants to know us. He's not a God of drive-by healings. He's a God of relationship. And so he stops and asks, who touched my cloak? To which the disciples are like, bruh. Do you see what's happening? Everyone is, who hasn't touched your cloak at this point? But Jesus is determined to find her. He's determined to see her and name her beloved. And he's willing to be interrupted even in the most urgent of tasks. For that, And it's important to see how radical this interruption is. Remember Gyrus, important, esteemed, elevated religious professional. This woman, unclean outcast. Jesus is allowing his urgent work for a really important person to be interrupted by the one who is deemed utterly unimportant. Friends, neighboring love is willing to be interrupted, especially by those who are overlooked, who are marginalized. Who are deemed unimportant. And so often we walk through our lives with an utter aversion to interruptions because our focus is on our own stuff. We've got to get our stuff done and it prevents us from seeing those we need to see. Here's the truth, you guys. The deepest work that God ever does in us and in the world comes in the middle of our interruptions. It comes in the middle of those annoying things that are interrupting our calendar. In fact, Jesus' whole ministry is evidence of this. You ever notice how often Jesus gets interrupted? It actually kind of dictated many of his years on earth. Just in Mark, this happens over and over. He's interrupted by Peter while he's praying. He's interrupted by an unclean leper when he's at church or the synagogue. Interrupted by a paralytic when he's speaking the word. Interrupted by a blind beggar whose cry is literally stopping him from getting to the cross, the whole point of his ministry. Jesus was interrupted so often, his interruptions had interruptions. Interruption, inception. That was Jesus' life. <laughs> and every time, Jesus stops to love the one in need, to love the interrupting one. Friends, how we respond to interruptions shows us who we truly are. How we respond to the angry person in front of us at the grocery store, or the friend or parent who calls us as we're on our way out the door, or the child interrupting our work day or the annoying student with whom we share a dorm room wall and whose music is always way too loud. How we respond to those people and those situations are the measure of our neighborly love. Uh, There's another theologian named Henry Nowen, who writes a lot about this dynamic of interruptions in his own life. He was a very accomplished academic, Harvard and Yale, educated and teacher. And that meant he was a very driven, very accomplished person. He had a lot of goals in his life, and he was always moving towards those goals. But as he got older, and followed Jesus more and more deeply, he realized that the interruptions to those goals were where God was really at work. That his interruptions were the places he needed to pay more attention to. He writes about this in his book, Reaching Out. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth sharing. It, It struck me this week as I studied. He says, don't we often look at the many events of our lives as big or small interruptions, interrupting our many plans, projects, and life schemes? Don't we feel an inner protest when a student interrupts our reading?" Bad weather, our summer. Illness, our well-scheduled plans. The death of a dear friend, our peaceful state of mind. A cruel war, our ideas about the goodness of man and the many harsh realities of our life. And doesn't this unending row of interruptions build in our hearts feelings of anger, frustration, even revenge? So much so that at times we see the real possibilities that growing old is synonymous with growing bitter. What if our interruptions are, in fact, opportunities? What if all the unexpected interruptions are, in fact, invitations to give up old-fashioned and outmoded styles of living and are opening up new, unexplored areas of experience? What if our history does not prove to be a blind, impersonal sequence of events over which we have no control, but rather reveals to us a guiding hand, pointing to a personal encounter in which all of our hopes and aspirations will reach their fulfillment? Then our life would indeed be a different life. Because then interruption is opportunity. Wounds, a warning, paralysis, an invitation to search for deeper sources of vitality. And then we can look for hope in the middle of crying cities, burning hospitals, and desperate parents and children. Then, indeed, we can listen to the God of history who speaks to us and respond to his ever new call for conversion. Neighboring love means being an interruptible person, friends. That's what God's inviting us into. And finally, third thing we see in Jesus' neighboring is that it brings new life. Notice that for each of these neighbors, Jesus doesn't just meet their physical needs, he does meet those needs, but he goes beyond those needs. For the bleeding woman, for instance, he doesn't just heal her, he welcomes her into a family that she has not had, he names her daughter. In front of all the people who have ostracized her and called her less than. No longer is she an outsider or another. She is a beloved child, loved simply because she is. And so if you entered into this room feeling like an outsider or an other, feeling rejected, alone, and this, Jesus says to you without hesitation or fine print you are a beloved daughter. You're a beloved son. You are welcome at the table. Simply come to me. Give me your life. And you'll be given an entirely new identity. And then for Jairus, he doesn't just respond to Jairus' need. He gives him hope. See, Jairus is in despair when he comes to Jesus. Think about how he must feel when Jesus responds to this woman. They're on their way to heal his daughter, and then this woman shows up, and he's like, are you kidding me? Her? My daughter is dying. Her? Imagine the grief when he hears the news that his daughter has died. But notice what Jesus says. Do not fear. Only believe. And as Jairus looks to Jesus with eyes clouded by stinging tears of pain and loss, he sees one thing. Complete confidence. Jesus has the keys to life. And all Jairus has to do is one thing, trust, hope. He's saying to Jairus, trust me, take my hand, because if you do, every tear will be wiped from your eyes. All your mourning will turn to dancing. All your pain will turn to joy. And so whatever pain or loss or grief you carry with you here, friends, Jesus speaks those same words to you. He holds you in those places, and he promises that even death." has no hold on you. Simply trust. Don't fear. Believe. And finally, Jairus' daughter, the little girl. Upon arriving to her, Jesus discovers only wailing, loud mourning. And that was actually common in that day. In that culture, they had professional mourners. Sounds like a really bummer job in a variety of ways. But in that culture, professional mourners would gather around someone who had lost a dear friend or family member, and they would loudly grieve so that that family would feel solidarity and so that they would feel they could have the space to really deeply grieve. And Jesus shows up to that place and says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Now, does Jesus really mean sleeping here? Most scholars think no. The phrase sleeping was used at other times throughout the rest of the New Testament to describe death. What Jesus is doing instead is saying that this act of resurrection he's about to perform is so easy for him, it's like waking someone up from sleep. In fact, his words to the girl indicate that. He says, talitha kum. Those words are in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have spoken. And the translation, little girl, get up, works really well. There's a scholar I was reading this week who pointed to an even deeper significance behind this this word. See, talitha was not just little girl. It was an affectionate kind of pet name that parents would have for their daughters. And so some people think this an accurate capturing of this word would be something like honey or sweetie. Friends, it's not just that Jesus gives us a new eternal family. It's not just that he gives us hope and despair. It's that he gives us life and death. He comes to us and says, honey, sweetie, it's time to get up. With Jesus, when he has you by the hand, even death itself is just a good night's sleep. And so we ultimately see the final power of neighboring as followers of this Jesus. It's not just about being nice to people. It's good to be nice to people. Be nice to people. Neighboring is not just about being nice to people. It's about becoming a channel of new life to all people. Because when we neighbor in Jesus' name, as Jesus did, we become the vehicles by which strangers are made family members, by which grief and pain and loss become inexpressible hope, by which the dying and dead come to life. As Teresa of Avila so beautifully put it, Christ has no hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. When we have time, when we become interruptible, then we're the hands, feet, and eyes of Jesus, friends. We are the vehicles of new life. That is something we should never want to hurry past. That is something we should... Eradicate all busyness in our lives to be a part of. So, this week, let's start chiseling away. Let's be people with time who are interruptible. Let's be people who look around our world and ask a life changing question Won't you be my neighbor? Let's pray.